Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and upcoming data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career to the next level. We do this by hearing directly from the top industry leaders out there in the field today, and we hear their lessons learned, their successes, their tough lessons, everything. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here for tuning in. And today we are speaking with Prashant Natarajan. He is an extremely accomplished data scientist, data science leader, product strategist, and consultant. He tells us about his experience in the past having worked at Oracle and H2O.ai. And today he is both as a co-faculty instructor of data science and artificial intelligence at Stanford University. And he is a principal for AI and analytics at Deloitte Australia. I hope that you enjoy the episode. Here's the conversation with Prashant. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm sitting with Prashant. How are you doing? Thank you so much for making the time. Oh, it's such a beautiful day here in Melbourne, Felipe, and thank you for your time. Very excited to be here chatting with you today. Same here, same here. So, so excited. So first, tell us, how did you get into the data world? What was it that pulled you in? So I think it goes back, I blame my education for it. Yeah. So I have a background in engineering, linguistics, and cognitive psychology. Great combination. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. One would also say that I had absolutely no idea of what I wanted to do, which is why I kept jumping all around the place. But there was a bit of method to the madness. Uh I started off with engineering because I think it's important to help us understand, especially in the world we live in, how things work. The linguistics education came in after a few years later when I noticed technology and business Mm. teams working in a global setup. And I realized Mm. that language was the thing that decided the success or failure of those relationships. It was typically not vision or strategy or technology that decided it. How we used verbal and written language was the most important thing in that. Correct. So a few years while after working, Mm. I decided to take a break to go get my master's in technical communications and linguistics and write my first book Amazing. on the topic, or to contribute to my first book on the topic. Yeah. I then decided to go join a PhD program at Texas Tech University in Lubbock as a fellow in order to understand how humans interact with technology. And then I figured out very quickly that I'm a horrible PhD student. <laughs> So decided to run away as soon as possible to get back to the real world of industry. And here I am. Good man. How do you feel about that decision looking back? At a time when something happens, you really don't know sometimes whether it's the right decision or not. That was the decision that then brought me to my first job in data and analytics Mm -hmm. in 2006. I think it is the reason I'm here chatting with you right now. So just based on that, I would say it was an awesome decision. Yeah, good man. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. And tell me, how did you have the foresight and the clarity back, I'm guessing would have been either in the late 90s, early 2000s, obviously early in your career. How did you have the foresight and the clarity to pick communication and linguistics as the fabric that binds us all and makes us successful in projects. I would love to sound smart and say that I saw ahead and I had foresight, but the reality is that's not true. So what was happening at that time was I had started my career. I was working as a product manager 
for Siemens, was kind of leading their team, global team, across the United States, Europe, and India. And during the process, I noticed certain things, which was that in the end, even in an information-rich world where we are building information-rich products and workflows, in the end, human interaction is still the most key determiner of success or not. Mm. And so I went to see what resources were available, describe how human and linguistic interaction worked in a technology-heavy space. And I found that there was little at that time in the late 90s, early 2000s to deal with the topic. So I decided that rather than complain too much about it, that I should probably contribute to the body of knowledge. And so I quit my job, went to get my master's from Auburn University in the U.S., focusing on that topic and focused a lot on specifically the use of English among different cultures in the technology space. Wow, very interesting. What were some of the findings that you had during that time? We should go back to the late 90s now because the environment that existed then doesn't exist anymore today. This was not specific to the company I was working for at that time. It was true of all companies. The mid to late 90s were an interesting time because it was when the world started getting more globalized. And you started seeing things such as not just people moving from one place to another and multicultural, multilingual teams coming together. Mm -hmm. At that time, it was also a time when there was the advent of outsourcing of technology and technology-heavy work. That's right. The common assumption at that time, and I remember this because I probably contributed to that assumption too, in some ways not knowing any better, was that if two people spoke English, it was good enough. And that was all was needed. So, and you could also see that in the way these teams were set up, which was focusing on English-speaking countries and English-speaking teams Mm. without, I think, a keen, uh, let me put it this way. We didn't have enough data at that time to tell us how these interactions worked. Yes. In the end, human interactions and human behavior are primarily data points. Mm. And because it was those early days, we just didn't have enough data to tell us how things worked in reality. So the assumption that if two people spoke English separated by 10,000 kilometers was all that required for success. (laughs) The data showed me that that was not the case. You needed a clear understanding of culture. And culture, as we know, eats everything else for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. (laughs) That's right. Culture is represented by language. Mm. Language at its core is mathematics. So I started looking at it because of my engineering background as, wow, okay, so if culture is language and language is applied mathematics, Mm. then why can't we essentially take data across all these things and bring it together in a way to improve the human experience of everybody? to improve the successes, to reduce the frustrations, Mm. and to empower people in creating not just great solutions and products, but be happy at the end of their workday as a result of those interactions. Yes, that is fantastic. That is outstanding because back then, people who were mathematically inclined were reluctant to jump to the other side of the fence 
into something that is like linguistics. It was seen as opposite worlds, very far removed from each other, and you were either in one camp or the other. But by creating, finding the actual link, find the mathematics of the language, you were able to link the two worlds. I like to think, Felipe, that both the left side and the right side of my work very well. But in reality, I know it's probably they do both don't work well. <laughs> no. So I needed to do both to get to the level of competency that other smarter people had with just one half of their brain. Oh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> it's too funny. Tell us, give us a, a, an overview of your career and your, obviously, the books that you've written along the way. Once you dropped out of the PhD program, what happened from then on? I got into the world of data and analytics, and this is something that I do a lot in my career right now, which is mentor young people and young professionals who are getting into the field, both at work and in my personal time. I was lucky to have a very far-thinking leader who had written the book on data warehousing at that time called Michael Schrader. And I was working at a company in Denver, Colorado. Mm -hmm. And one day, Michael called me as we were having lunch. And he said, Prashant, do you know what a star schema is? And I started seeing stars immediately <laughs> because I didn't know what it was. And Michael drew on a piece of napkin what a star schema was and gave me a 15-minute lesson on how to create analytics products using integrated data. And that got me all excited because all of a sudden I saw that even things such as workflows and business processes could actually not just be influenced by, but by, driven by database decisions. And it was that technical lesson that then allowed me to then take that back and apply it. So as Isaac Newton said famously, if I saw early, it was because I stood on the shoulder of a giant, and that was certainly something that happened to me. So throughout my career, I have been lucky to have been associated with great experts and leaders who not only supported me, but in some cases taught me and corrected me when I needed it. That network is what I give most credit to. It would be easy for me to say that I was smarter than everybody else, mm. but I would only be fooling myself if I said that. Yeah. More important thing is I had great mentors and great friends who were willing to support me. And that's what I'm grateful for. That's incredible. So learning about the star schema is the start of the journey or something that opened up a new, a new world. It opened up a new world. We ended up building the first data warehousing product in the United States that was commercially available. And it was not just a data warehousing product. It also included Hyperion S-based cubes. And it included then an ETL tool called Essential Data Stage and Quality Stage. <laughs> Very nice. So we, I think, put together the first data-driven product yes. in that industry in the U.S. using this. And then later on, of course, a lot of things changed. And it was the thing that got me started on this journey. Outstanding. That is excellent. The journey between then and now, how has it been? What have been some of the, the main stages that you've gone through? I have been extremely lucky, including in my current role, to work with a lot of people who are smarter than me. That's all you can wish for. You can wish for 
your colleagues and your customers to know more than you do and in various respects. So each of us has our strengths, each of us has our skill sets and competencies and no single individual in the hyper-specialized day we live in today can know everything. Yes. And as a result, the question is, how do you interact with people to figure out what their strengths are, Mm. to figure out what motivates them, and to work with them to come up with joint definitions of and achieve success together. So I consider myself the luckiest person on earth as a result of these experiences that I have had and I continue to have and I'm sure will continue to do so in the years ahead. Amazing. And through your career, what areas have you become interested in, in applying data analytics into and how have they presented to you? How did you find those areas? What do they say about opportunity? It's preparation meeting need at the right time. Yes. So I think that has been something that has worked well for me. So after my time in Denver, Oracle was setting up a data and analytics group for industries, and they were looking to invest in vertical-specific applications, especially in health and life sciences. So I joined them as one of their earliest team members, a product manager to help them do that. Ended up being with Oracle for almost 10 years in various roles. And by the time I entered there, I was the portfolio leader of their data and analytics, including advanced analytics products. Amazing. And solutions. And had the opportunity to work with some of the greatest clients in the world across board in Australia, across Asia, Latin America, Europe, and the United States. So again, my interest in data-driven insights and data science met the fact that there was a need and I was lucky that the interest met the need to create the opportunity for me to successively build upon that. Spent some time at uh, h2o.ai in building AI applications for specific verticals again at h2o. Very heavy data science driven. Yes. But then I think this is also something, Felipe, you talk about quite a bit in your interviews and your articles, which is data science without a business purpose or a business need is really an experiment. And in order for it to be successful, we have to bring the business need together with the people who are doing it and use data science as an enabler. I currently work as a principal of analytics and AI at Deloitte Consulting based here in Melbourne. It has been a fantastic experience in terms of working both at Deloitte and working with our customers. That's incredible. And obviously, things have changed a fair bit, especially when it comes to merging the business problem with the data science, with the quant world. How have you seen that evolve? This is a very important question that you're asking because it goes to a fundamental revolution that has happened even in identifying the business problem. If you go back a bit into the history of computing and the history of data and analytics, data and analytics is not something that's new. When the Egyptians were building the pyramids, they were doing data and analytics. Their tools were a lot rougher than what we have. They had chisels and stone tablets on which to write things. But if you go back, you can see that they were actually 
calculating productivity wow. in terms of understanding how their workforce was being put to use. Mm-hmm. The most voluminous records we have from Egyptian history, interestingly, are not records of the kings and the queens. It's actually of how the pyramids were built huh. in terms of numbers. If you go back to the Indus Valley civilization, mm-hmm. the earliest records were really about weights and measures and how trade was conducted. So data and analytics is as old as the reason for humans to interact with each other, whether it is through trade or whether it is in society. And so by nature, all human beings are data and analytics consuming creatures. Today, we have the technology that has caught up with the human need. So technology, if I may use the metaphor I used previously, has become more skilled to meet the human need to create opportunity, which didn't exist before this. If you go back in the last five to 10 years, Mm -hmm. though Hinton did a lot of work with deep Boltzmann machines in the mid 80s, I would say that the combination of the internet, pictures of cats (laughs) and image recognition have led to a revolution in deep learning today. But to go back to the question you asked, historically, the application of computing data and analysis have been traditionally humans trying to define a problem, trying to find the data that can help solve that problem, and then humanly writing algorithms that would create outputs or insights that we could act upon. That doesn't go away. That still remains true. I am a huge admirer of the human mind and the human brain, which even today is far superior to any deep learning system that exists. Correct. So natural intelligence still beats artificial intelligence on a broader general level. Mm. But at the same time, what we should agree to and understand is that when it comes to narrow AI and specific applications, computing can do things that the human mind can't. And I would like to expand a bit more on this to wrap up this answer. Business leaders and technology leaders must look at data science as a way to help them define business problems using inference Mm -hmm. rather than purely using deduction which was the old school way of doing things. It doesn't mean deduction goes away. But by examining data, we can find that clearly there are more than enough business domains and contexts where we need to put data to work for us to give us new insights Mm. as opposed to the old way of us merely working on data. I love that. Have it feed us instead of the other way around. Absolutely, yes. That's excellent. I think the other things that have happened in the last few years have been the advent of the cloud. It's made computing cheaper in many cases. It has democratized software development and data science. It has made the job of collecting and integrating data easier. I'm not saying it's completely easy, but easier than before. And the active open source data science community has been rapidly evolving tools, packages, and algorithms and sharing them in ways that we have not seen since Linux and maybe has even exceeded that. That's very true. That has been a force multiplier in this space. It's so exciting. Tell me, Adiv, in this space, what are you most excited about? 
I am most excited about the value that business leaders are increasingly seeing in data platforms, mm. data science applications, and both BI and AI. So while AI is an overused term, the fact remains is that as the old adage goes, we tend to overestimate the effect of a technology in the short term and underestimate its effect in the long term. Mm -hmm. So we are still, I think, early on. But I already see from my interactions with business leaders here in Australia and around the globe that they are increasingly relying on data science-driven decisions. But more importantly, they're asking the important question about how does it benefit our customers? How does it benefit business? How does it allow us to do things in a more hyper-personalized way and not necessarily as just a pure tool for automation, yes. but really of improving the human experience and improving business performance, improving collaboration, and where I think a lot of focus is going to remain is hyper-personalization, which is using data and data science-driven products to personalize the experience for each individual based on their needs, based on their behavior, and based on our capability to serve those needs. Yes, I love that you said that. I love that you're thinking about it. It's an area that is extremely exciting. So I love the fact that you see business leaders focusing on the value that they can get from data science and that being having that very closely tied together with the hyper-personalization because I think that's the way of the future. And as, as AI gets better and some of the developments that we're seeing now around, for example, Bloomberg having, I think, about 30% of their articles being written by an AI. So if you have more data about an individual's preferences, we can have articles that are personalized to each individual. I just want to play off on that example. Yes. One of the largest retailers in the world derives almost 35% of the revenue from recommendation systems and collaborative filtering and association rules. So it's very interesting to talk about machine learning and data science in either an abstract way or mm. in a technical way. Mm. But when you use examples like what you used and this retailer over here, the fact remains is humans are incredibly social creatures. And we are yeah. absolutely fine with recommendations yes. being made to us that are driven by data as long as it serves our needs. Mm. We all work hard for our money. None of us want to waste it. But when a machine comes up with a recommendation that people like you also bought this, because you bought this product, you may also be interested in that product. Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of aids that data science brings to the table and also personalizes that mm. because that experience has to be personalized. Yes, that's right. At least in today's world, the companies that are able to do that the easiest are the ones that have the most data and that have been acquiring it for the longest time. Do you think that that's something that's likely to change in the future? How do you see that playing out? I absolutely see it changing in the future, Felipe. Mm. In the simple way that companies that don't do it are going to be in serious trouble. That's where I see the change happening. And we only have to look at evidence. We are both data people. So we don't have to, this, this is not opinion. Correct. What the data tells us is that the world's, one of the world's largest taxi cab companies 
actually owns no taxis and employs no drivers mm-hmm. in terms of Uber. Mm-hmm. One of the largest hoteliers in the world owns no properties and no reservation agents yep. in terms of Airbnb. Some of the largest retailers in the world today own no physical locations or rather do more sales through virtual and online and hyper-personalization and data-driven products Mm. than they do off of stores. Do I think that everybody is going to be in a situation where they have to now shut down their existing business as usual and move to data science-driven products? No. Like I said, we are still social creatures. And if you take a look at, for example, Australia, it's a society where relationships matter a lot and interactions matter a lot. So while we continue to celebrate that, we should also be looking at ways by which we can make things better for our customers and users through the use of data-driven products. And that is only going to increase as we move forward, in my opinion. Definitely. So what advice would you have for companies, organizations that are looking to move into into data-driven products? I think we have to kind of start with a few things, Mm. right? My first thing would be is ask a specific question and start small. While it is very tempting to start with large efforts, especially in data science and advanced analytics, the reality is that in order to encourage a culture of success, we need to be able to deliver success in a continuous way. Mm -hmm. Starting small allows us to do that. Our machine learning should answer a very specific question that tells us something that the business needs to know. And these should be answered appropriately by access to the data that someone has. The first thing is I would say, start focused, ask a specific question, solve a specific question with an impactful answer. Ask yourself, what valuable action will be taken as a result of my analytics? Yes. What value do I bring to the people I serve, whether they are internal or external? The second thing I would say is that simple. Simply because in the end, we want our results to be both robust and repeatable. And simplicity ensures less model complexity. Fewer parameters that you can manage and track are better than more parameters. Yes. The other thing I would say is start off with a data set that you know that you have applied BI on so that when you do the AI on it or you apply data science on it, you know that it's a data set that you have worked with before. So I would say start simple from that perspective. It just results in more success that way. The third thing I would say Mm. is start off with understanding that you can't separate data science from data platforms. In other words, it's tempting to be able to take data out of an Excel spreadsheet and try and apply machine learning on it, but it's not going to work. So it is important for us to bring our data together. So things such as KYC, know your customer, master data management, metadata management, building a data lake or a data vault or a data warehouse Mm. are going to still be important in this new world. The fourth thing I would say is encourage your data scientists to master and learn SQL from a technology perspective now moving into the technical space. It is still the most popular 
language in terms of acquiring data, manipulating data, and using data. It's great that you have R and Python skills, but if you don't have enough SQL, then it's going to be like my life on a Sunday, all dressed up and nowhere to go. That's excellent. To continue on some of the best practices I've seen, I would also say treat your data with suspicion. It's tempting once you have brought your data in now to assume that that data is perfect and ready for analytical use. But it's important to look at the data, to dig into its details, understand that correlations don't mean causations, look at suspicious gaps, and understand the role of systemic biases that happen both as a result of human biases and system biases. In other words, if you're trying to look for a relationship between two variables mm. or features mm. and you don't see one, it may be as simple as the fact that you have not collected one of them. Absence yes. doesn't necessarily mean certainty. Finally, we can't ignore the fact that data quality and what we talk about in our book, Demystifying Big Data and Machine Learning, data fidelity are extremely important, which means that there is no one unchanging view of data quality. Data quality or data fidelity, as we call it, has to be looked at from the context of user, use, and the fact that quality definitions change over time. These are some of the things from a business perspective and a data management analytics technical perspective that I would recommend your listeners think about. And all great advice because it is a long journey. It's a challenging one. And I think starting small, starting with the fundamentals, building upon those over time, that's excellent advice. That is definitely the way to go. And tell me, over your career, what have been some applications that you've really enjoyed, things that you've been excited about working through in the different industries? What excites me a lot now, Felipe, is what I'm doing right now. So we are doing some work can't name the client, mm -hmm. but uh, with organization here in Melbourne in using data science, machine, and deep learning to do natural language processing across omnichannel customer interactions, which means looking at unstructured data from chats of various types that happen and also looking at other sources of data such as social media and NPS etc. In order to do a few things, primary among which creating an improved customer experience and customer journey. And secondly, also automating the analytics pipeline from end to end for unstructured data going all the way to visualization and direct connections to the workflows. Interesting. So we could probably spend the next three hours talking about this yeah. because I think Natural language processing, thanks to the rapid advances that have happened just in the last three years, whether it is NLP of large text and unstructured text, whether it's images, videos, and so on and so forth, is one of the most exciting frontiers. There's also work that I have been doing right now on the predictive analytics front, taking a look at how to help organizations leverage their structured data using advanced analytics methods, such as clustering, forecasting, anomaly detection, and so on and so forth, in terms of, again, bringing new value to these organizations and to the users they serve. In the past, have done work in terms of taking analytic insights and 
connecting that to workflows in a way so that we think beyond reports and dashboards. Mm -hmm. While visualizations are very important and humans react very well to visuals, the reality is that unless you take those insights and serve it in a context-sensitive way within a piece of workflow when somebody logs in into that system Mm -hmm. or into a smartphone so that they can press a button with a single click, we won't be able to take the full advantage of these advanced analytics. Richard Hamming said very famously in the 1950s Mm -hmm. that the purpose of computing is insights and not numbers. That's a quote that I have used in the first page of our book. And while it's a simple quote, it explains a lot as to why that is important. I would extend Hamming's quote to say the purpose of computing is not just to generate insights, but also increase personalization and convenience. So true, because that wraps up the majority of the value being created from machine learning definitely, but possibly from computing in general, around the convenience and the personalization. That's what all customers want more of. In your discussions with business leaders, is that something that you think is well understood out there? Do you think that is that something that organizations are asking for? Or do you find that there's a, a bit of education needed at this point in time? I think it really comes down to all of the above. It is our role as data and analytics professionals, Felipe, to continue to do what you're doing over here, to bring people together, to share insights, to collaborate, and to share freely what we know. But it's also important for us as professionals to learn from what is happening out there. So yes, there is a need for education, but I would say that need for education is multidimensional. It's not just us providing education, it's also us learning in the process. So I can teach you something, I will definitely learn something from you, and let's create this environment, a continuous learning knowledge-based ecosystem with advanced analytics and machine learning as a horizontal capability that allows us to do it. If you can tell me a a bit more, uh, what do you mean horizontal capability? How do you see that playing out in organizations? As we discussed previously, the impact of a technology is not always readily understood in the short term. Mm -hmm. And this has been true of all technologies since the dawn of history, maybe except the wheel, in short. So goes back when electricity first came about, there was a real fear that people will get electrocuted in their homes. So Edison ran a couple of experiments that today would be unacceptable for the animal cruelty involved in it. But there were a couple of experiments that were run to show that electricity is actually not going to kill all of us or injure all of us. It's actually going to lead to a net increase in human progress And it's going to make us more comfortable and, frankly, more prosperous. Today, when we look back 150 years ago, you almost wonder, why did people not think of electricity as a horizontal capability that would drive everything from electrification of the house to mass transportation to the way we re-engineered our production processes to the fact that we all today are talking about computing, Mm. which would be impossible without electricity. Yes. So if I were to use a very similar metaphor, I would say that data science, machine, deep learning, AI, call it what you will, or call it all three of them, have to be seen almost like electricity. 
And the way it's going to work is that whether you're dealing with customers in terms of customer acquisition, customer churn, customer happiness and engagement, Mm -hmm. whether you're looking at internal business processes in terms of business process modeling, business process improvement, whether you're going to look at strategic needs of how to reinvent or extend the capabilities in order to serve untapped business needs or identify new business needs, or even things such as IT systems and computing in terms of using things like anomaly detection to figure out in as close to real time as possible what's happening and what's breaking. Data science is increasingly a horizontal capability that's going to impact all of those. Sometimes there may be a temptation, and I'm not saying this is universal, to treat data science as a vertical pillar because it's easier to recognize and build teams around vertical things than it is to treat it as a horizontal capability. That is, again, a very human tendency to do that. But then the question that business and technology leaders should ask themselves is, should we be doing that? Or should we be treating it as a horizontal capability that's going to inject new capabilities, new skills, and new value into everything that we do? And that's what I mean by treating data science as a horizontal capability across the organization. Into everything that we do. That is fantastic. Let me ask you about how that's playing out in some of the spaces that that I know that you're passionate about. One of them is healthcare, which is treated in your latest book. How do you see the use of machine learning and AI in healthcare? How have you seen that playing out over time? And uh, what are some of the things that you've observed there? Health and wellness are more deeply personal to all of us than anything else. In the end, we are going to fall sick. We are going to get old. And much as I hate to say it, we are all going to be faced with situations where somebody we love or ourselves Mm. are going to be in a place where we'll need the best of medicine and the best of health to help us get to a better place. Whether that's because of illness or old age is immaterial. We'll all be there someday. And the key thing is, like all other industries that we look at, and this already we're seeing this quite a bit, is going to be always a significant frontier because of this deeply personal and human need to apply data and advanced analytics in order to improve things. And that can be across the gamut of the patient experience. Mm. It can be wellness management. It can be looking at things such as the autism spectrum and figuring out what somebody's needs are going to be 15, 20, 30, 40 years from now. It can also bring new ways of doing things to things such as hospitals operations, Mm. the premiums that an insurance company is going to charge, the amount of money that governments have to spend in terms of segmentation of populations based on their predictive health needs. And it's going to lead all the way into developing new tools and therapies for cancer and the other diseases that are today considered to be terminal diseases. And The key thing is going to be like everything else. Are we bringing the right data in place? Are we platforming it? Are we putting the right algorithms to work? Are we leveraging the unstructured data and NLP to its greatest? And finally, how are we using this to benefit patients, caregivers, doctors, Mm. nurses, researchers? And also, 
public policy. Yes, that's, I think, a, a very important and often overlooked area that needs some focus from data, public policy. Yeah, interesting. And I'd like to, if you could, could we pick one of the examples that you mentioned and could we dive a little bit deeper into one of those, which would be your pick, the ones that you mentioned before? Let's take one of the examples where the opioid crisis. It's a place where we are seeing a lot of challenges, not just in the United States, but across the world. Opiates have been prescribed to people because they are in pain. Nobody wants to be in pain. And it's a terrible thing if you're the one dealing with it. And opiates have always, in the last few decades, have been one of the last lines of defense in terms of severe pain. And yet, if you kind of take a look at what has happened in the U.S., and I'm going to use the U.S. example because there is a significant impact on a large population. The sample is large enough for us to know the effects compared to other places. Yeah. And we can see that it has also led to a public health crisis in terms of not just regular people, but also celebrities who have been affected by both addiction and in some cases worse than that. Now, there seems to be a bit of a movement in terms of restricting opiates now across the board and reducing prescriptions. Again, the pendulum tends to swing too much one way or the other. So without going into the merits or the demerits, if there is a feeling that there was lax prescription of opiates in the past, we seem to be going to the other end now where we think we're going to clamp down, including denying people who need them the ability to use them. And this is an application of data science, frankly Mm. speaking. And in my past work, what I have seen is identifying the needs of someone, predicting whether they are going to be addicted or not to an opiate, and then tracking that mm. with things such as iris scanners and figuring out their susceptibility. Are all data science-driven products that are going to help us deal with this crisis? But it's not just that. Coming up with new formulations, coming up with new molecules that are going to bring comfort to the user without getting them addicted is also a data science issue. Because in order to deal with this large amount of chemistry, biochemistry, molecular data and drug discovery, we are going to have to depend on machine learning to deal with not just the large data sets, but also come up with possibilities quickly because it is a public policy crisis, Mm. a health policy crisis, and frankly speaking, a deeply personal human crisis the U.S. is going through. It's not just a U.S. problem. We are seeing this across board. Mm. We are seeing this in other countries also. So, and I just used the opiate example simply because that is one of the ones that comes up in the news quite a bit. But on a positive side, looking at natural language processing in order to come up with new treatments to process the large amounts of unstructured data Mm. To recognize, for example, as people in China are doing quite a bit across in the health setup to identify diseases from medical imaging are all ways by which data science is already being put to use. This is not possibilities Mm -hmm. we are talking about anymore. These are real examples of how data science can help across the board. Yes. You talked about public policy. We all deal with specific amount of dollars. So the questions that we have to ask ourselves is how do we use data analytics and data science to make sure that we get the greatest possible value for the taxpayer dollar or the greatest possible benefit 
for humanity and for the societies we live. Yes, that's fantastic. Ah, this is so interesting because you have such deep expertise, not only in data science and analytics and advanced analytics, but also at an industry level and additionally for a few industries and additionally at a product level. So I can really see the your strong product background coming out in, in your approaches, in how you see the problems that need to be solved. And that's exactly what we need more of today. What do you think is missing on the product side on people building products? And obviously, this is a broad question and we can go into whatever area you want to take it. But if there was something that you would like to see in product development, what would that be? It's a great question and an important question. Having spent time both on the product side of the house and also on the solutions and management consulting advisory side of the house, what I see is the opportunities in front of us are varied, in many cases industry-specific, but in as many cases also industry-common. So the trick is going to be for product companies where to build a capability that is common and how to then make it apply in a specific vertical. And it's a difficult determination to make. And this is where I think product companies must work closely with consulting firms and systems integrators to come up with a solution-focused approach and not treat the product as a be-all and end-all of what is being done. Which means, and I think most most mm. companies do recognize this, but at the same time, don't try to build a product feature that requires a different skill set, a different mindset, and a different type of interaction that others in the ecosystem can provide. And know when not to build product features. Yes, it is human nature often to try and solve things through a feature and and be swayed into building things, doing things that you're not necessarily the best place organization or product to do. What are some of the things that, that people should be focusing on in order to make the right decisions when faced with those ones? I think it really comes to a keen understanding of what problem you're trying to solve and what problem you're not trying to solve or what mm. problem you cannot solve. And a product, no product, is going to do everything that a user wants. Understanding and accepting that as a reality is my biggest advice for product strategists, product managers, and developers, which is, like you said, first accept that there are things you can do very well, there are things you can do reasonably well, and there are things that you cannot do well. Focus on the first. Deal with the second because everybody likes a challenge. Leverage your ecosystems of partners and alliances for the third. Because no single organization has competencies that are equal in all of these. Knowing what alliances to build, doing it with the right players who are experts in their fields is going to be important. The metaphor I would use is that when I moved here to Australia, Philippe, I didn't try and build my own car from a kit, though it is available. And there are kits over here that have some very nice replicas of 1950s and 60s cars. They yeah. look really, really cool. And much as I was tempted, I had to drop my daughter off at school the next week. So what I did 
which I think I did the right thing, is I went to the dealership and I went and bought a car. So even though there was a kit available, I didn't buy a mm. kit and try to assemble it on my own, which meant I'd have to do it on weekends. And as my partner will tell you, I'm horrible at putting a nut and a bolt together. <laughs> so I focused on what I'm good at, which is using personalization to understand what my family and I need and identifying the right price point the right vendor, the right mm -hmm. manufacturer, reading the reviews to find out what was required, and then going and buying a car rather than assembling from a kit, yes. frankly speaking. And I'm not even talking about building my own, just talking about assembling a kit. Mm. So I, that metaphor, I think, applies for product companies too. Know when you can provide an end-to-end -end solution, know when you cannot provide an end-to-end -end solution. Mm -hmm. And there are going to be more instances where you cannot provide an end-to-end -end solution than ones that you can. That's right. So true. Thank you. Tell me, in your career, what are you most proud of? I celebrate relationships because they allow me to learn. They give me a chance to contribute. They allow me to work with customers to solve their problems and leave them with happy, smiling faces. And what I'm most proud of is relationship-driven successes that have allowed us to take some really complex problems, whether it's in financial services, it is in health or manufacturing, and in every single instance, leaving a happy customer at the end of it. I believe personally, that if you can't leave a smile on somebody's face who is trusting you with their business success, then we shouldn't be doing what we are doing as individuals. Yes. And as someone who takes a lot of pride in not just my work, but leaving that happy smile, I would say that my track record of customers who want me back is something that I'm most proud of. Excellent. And that is a fantastic metric to focus on. If you're going to focus on anything out of your work, that is a fantastic one. How many of my customers are still wanting my help? We spoke a little bit about the exciting work that you've been doing in financial services and in healthcare. Can you tell me a little bit about the manufacturing side? What has uh, piqued your interest in the manufacturing industry? It's really big data. When we talk about big data, Manufacturing is, in my opinion, the most exciting frontier for big data. Simply because if we often talk about data science, we talk about data and analytics, we talk about Industry 4.0, we talk about IoT. And then you think, really, where does IoT have its greatest potential? It's really in connecting manufacturing plants, devices, equipment to PLCs, and MESs that will basically result in converting real-time data using data science and serving it up in context with actionable insights. And it's a lot to unpack there. Mm. But in general, with also the advent of robotics on the manufacturing floor and the need for humans to work more with robotic systems and also leverage and thrive with IoT, it's an area, again, this goes back to my engineering background because chemical engineering, which is what my undergraduate degree was in, is primarily the art of improving product quality and product yield 
using data analytics and mathematics. It's an area that really, really excites me. These are the three verticals that I mostly work in, FSI, health, and manufacturing. They all have exciting opportunities, some very interesting challenges, and most importantly, all provide options and pathways to improving things and making people happier, especially users. So it gives me a lot of excitement and passion. That is awesome. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. I wanted to ask you a tough question about something that a lot of, a lot of people dread about failures and how sometimes going through a tough time and a failure that may be perceived as a failure at the time, then it can lead to greater success. Has that happened in your personal or professional life? Have you been through something that looked like a failure at the time that then led you to greater success? Yes, simply yes, and more than once. So I think we learn more from our failures than we do from our successes. Of course, none of us wants to fail. As driven individuals and as human beings, mm -hmm. we want to succeed at everything we do. And I'm no exception to that in wanting to succeed at everything I do. But what I have found is some of the failures that I have had personally and professionally have led to successes which wouldn't have been possible except for the learnings that came out of those failures. So without going through specific examples, mm. because I don't think it's fair to the organizations where I work, where some of these things happen, mm -hmm. I would say that on that front, the key thing that I have focused on while these organizations 10 years ago, for example, was not just fail, but quickly recover from it and do use the data and analytics to figure out why it happened. Yes. And then fix it. So the reason I take pride in happy customers is not because every single thing that I have done has been successful 100%. Four out of five have been successful. And the one that has been a failure has been something that we converted into a success with the right mitigation and management of the problem. On a personal front, when I decided to quit my PhD program in 2006 and return a much coveted fellowship that I was one of, I would say, the only person in the United States to get in that year, was definitely a blow to my sense of achievement at that time. And then when I look back, the reasons why I did it turned out to be true. I wanted to see essentially myself doing more on a daily basis. And I didn't think I was necessarily cut out for a four-year PhD program. And uh, what looked like a failure at that time has uh, resulted in several milestones across multiple industries, countries, and domains. And it has been something that I have not only recovered from, but it has been something that I have celebrated. That's right, because then that sparked the career yes. that you've had, that's outstanding. Yeah, thank you. So in fact, my advice to the students I teach, whether it's at Monash or at Stanford, is never doubt yourself. If I can make it, so can you. That is awesome. I think that is a fantastic note to end on. I love that so much. Prachant, thank you so much. This has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge, wisdom, your insights. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Thank you for this opportunity. I think uh, Philippe 
I would love to see how we can do more together in order to serve the data science community and the analytics community here in Melbourne and Australia and look forward to working with you on embarking on that journey. Same here. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.